Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mesa Menega. In this episode, I talk with Angela Parker. Angela is Assistant Professor of New Testament and Greek at McAfee School of Theology. She is also the recent author of If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Laura McElroy. Laura McElroy is an indie folk artist from Colorado. You can get connected with Angela and Laura and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Dr. Angela Parker with us. And Dr. Angela Parker, you do so many things in the world, but one of those things that you do is that you're the assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at McAfee School of Theology in Atlanta. But who is Dr. Angela Parker to Dr. Angela Parker? I am, oh goodness, wife and mother and grandmother. So Mm. I often tell folks that The first few years of school did not quote unquote take for me. It was only after going through a divorce and raising teenagers that school actually began to make sense because I went back to school when my children were teenagers. Mm. So I am an older adult who returned to school and then remarried because I met another older adult who returned back to school. And so then it almost felt like I was put back into college and (laughs) really discovering who I was Mm. after, after all of that. So I think after suffering a divorce, being a single parent, then getting them grown and remarrying and now embarking on this academic journey, that's still very mind boggling to me because I would have never thought that I'd make it to this particular mm-hmm. point in my life. And wow. I'm just excited for that. That's amazing. So yeah, that, that's a little bit more about me. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. I love that about you. So <laughs> this is your first book, right? Yes, it is. Which I'm, assu- I'm sure like years ago when you first started your academic journey again, I don't know, maybe you had a, a goal to write a book, but here you are. You've got a book <laughs> out now. Uh, so with this being your first book, what did you learn about yourself while you were writing the your very first book? Well... I learned that there are some works and some deep thinking that has to be done before I do the other traditional things, meaning I cannot ignore what goes on in the world. Mm. And so my quote unquote first book should have been my republished, um, my published dissertation, which I could not go back to because so much was going on in the world. And even as I think about it, my own dissertation, it it still engages fallen black and brown bodies in the world, but just in a different way. And for If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? I really had to 
think for myself about how I really feel about Bible as authority and authoritarianism mm. in my life, because I felt like I was teaching and I'm still teaching New Testament and love it. But one thing that I'm always pushing students to rethink is exactly what is their relationship to the Bible. And so for me, I think I also had to rethink that as well. As I see issues of authority and authoritarianism in the world that almost take over what our relationship of the Bible could mm. or should be. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I failed to mention about at the beginning of the episode that you recently wrote the book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. So it's all about biblical authority, and which is why you're you're mentioning this right now. Yes, so yes, in, exactly. In, in case you were a listener and you were confused and you're wondering why are they talking about <laughs> biblical authority already, that is because <laughs> Angela just wrote a book about it. Yes. <laughs> so that's what you learned about yourself while you were writing the book. But you're also an incredible professor of New Testament. What did you learn about theology or even about the Bible as you wrote the book that you maybe didn't know before? I think the biggest thing that I learned about biblical scholarship, which I already had an inkling that I already knew about it, is that it was not made for me. And I had to be comfortable mm. with carving out my own niche space in biblical scholarship. Because again, I'm not the traditional biblical scholar who wears tweed jackets with elbow patches. That's just not going to <laughs> ever be me. So how do I actually claim my own mm. space and identity in this particular field? And I think that's what I'm trying to do. And, and I feel like I've grown a little bit more stronger in that. But of course, I'm always anxious to have conversations. I don't think I'm anxious about it, but very ready to have conversations from biblical scholars who will even push back against my work and push back against the idea that white masculinity had been such an authority in biblical scholarship up until this time. Mm -hmm. And I always have to say, I'm not bashing all white males. Please let us all begin to think a little bit more nuancedly about the constructs that occur in academia. All right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's... Although it would be fair if you were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm almost always aware of how you have to have these conversations and how you have to. I have to be humble in my own self and my own identity. And I think towards the end of the book, I say, of course, womanist biblical interpretation may not be the be all end all of all biblical mm -hmm. scholarship, but it adds to the conversation. Absolutely. So how do we continue to have these conversations without, without discarding people mm -hmm. as well? So mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Sort of along those lines then, what was it that maybe you learned about biblical authority that as you were writing the book that you kind of discovered as you were writing the book? I mean, I would imagine a lot of the book was already maybe pre-written or you knew a lot of the sort of facts or history about biblical authority going into writing it, but maybe there were some little nuggets here and there where you're like, wow, I didn't know that. And you're like, I got to include that in the book. Yes. I think the biggest nugget that I, I kind of knew, but really did not know was the connection to political authoritarianism and mm. what that meant as I was rethinking 
Ronald Reagan and trickle down economics and mm. rethinking just how how much strategy actually goes into both politics and how much strategy actually goes into protecting biblical authority mm-hmm. and what that means for the white men who are arbiters of power. Mm -hmm. And so I knew it, but I did not know how to make that connection until I began reading outside in political strategizing and what that looked like. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the main thing that I had an inkling for, but I did not necessarily know how to write about it yet. And so I still think that there's still more work to be done in making that tighter connection. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to have started this, mm-hmm. but I think mm-hmm. there's still more to to unpack and uncover yeah. and what that looks like. And we'll definitely dive more into the history of biblical inerrancy and everything. Yes. But before we do that, the first thing I want to mention is I love that you wrote about this because I think in a, at least in a lot of the circles that I run in of people who are kind of leaving evangelicalism or have left evangelicalism, the biggest stumbling block for them was to get over biblical inerrancy and the Bible as the only authority in their life. Right. So to rethink and to put it in context with the rest of history, I I think is an incredibly important piece to, as somebody is maybe rethinking their faith and rethinking their relationship Mm -hmm. to the Bible. And especially with you adding your womanist lens, I think is even more important to understand how gender and sexuality and even race gets included in this conversation. Definitely. So with that said, one of the key distinctions that I think is really important while reading this book is the difference between biblical inerrancy and biblical infallibility. Mm-hmm. So can you explain what that difference is between the two and why yes. that difference is sort of important, especially as you read this book? Thank you. That's a great question as well. One of the interesting conversations that I had after the book came out was with my 20-something-year-old nieces. And one niece said, Ati, I don't even use those words inerrancy and infallibility. Mm. And I said, yeah, you probably don't use those words, but I pretty much can guarantee that they affect your Mm. walk and your relationship Mm -hmm. with God and with Bible, even if you don't use the words. And so inerrancy is essentially the idea that the biblical text is without any error. So there's no, any kind of error in historical thinking. It's almost this idea of thinking about biblical text as Mm, mm fact-based. And then the idea of infallibility is the idea that the Bible will accomplish its goal of salvation because that's what it is. That's what its job is to do, that the Bible will be infallible in getting someone to salvation. And I think what's been interesting for me as I think about especially biblical infallibility is the idea that the way that someone gets to salvation is very individualistic Mm. and that individualism is really playing out in the conversations that we have about justice as a concept, Mm. or even the conversations that we have about what community looks like. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember if it was a John Piper or a John MacArthur, but one of those Johns. Yeah. One of those Johns (laughs) that the Bible is personal and individual. And I think that's what goes back to that infallibility understanding, that it's infallible to get a certain person to salvation. 
the heck with thinking about communities, the Mm. heck with thinking about systems, the heck with thinking about structures. And I think that's one thing that's missing in the infallible and inerrancy conversation. What do we do with communities? Because I think we've been so set up, especially in a Western construct of living, that it's all about the individual pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And that's not the community that Jesus comes from. That's not the community that the Israelites come from. So how do we automatically put on this text that's been written over thousands of years, this single inerrant and infallible idea. Mm. I think that it's an authority to get us to do something, but I think the getting us to do is way more expansive than individual salvation. So with that distinction made between biblical inerrancy and biblical infallibility, I think one of the most amazing parts of your book is you talking about the history of biblical inerrancy, because you kind of basically point out that not only is it a recent invention in the life of Christianity, but it also kind of emerged out of, let's just say, very toxic reasons. I think this piece would just absolutely blow anybody's mind who doesn't know this about biblical inerrancy. They, you know, they may have grown up believing that the Bible is totally without error, but they have no idea how they even came to holding that view. And you kind of talking about the history really puts it in perspective of, oh, wow, there's a lot of problems with understanding the Bible in this way. So can you talk about the history of biblical inerrancy, why it even came to be, and how it developed over the last century or two? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the interesting thing for me was the readings and rereadings that I was doing in Lutheranism. Yeah. And thinking about John Calvin and also thinking about the Reformation. I think the Protestant Reformation and the way that the reformers were arguing about biblical inerrancy and infallibility actually began to help me understand that we're in almost a similar reformative mode today. Mm. And that was interesting to begin to think about that these conversations on whether the biblical text is inerrant or infallible in translation And well, with the reformer saying it can't be inerrant and infallible in translation that only historically the original, and I'm putting original in quotation marks, manuscripts are inerrant or infallible, but also knowing that we have no original Mm. manuscripts of our Hebrew Bible or Greek New Testament. So We have started behind the ball almost from Jump Street because we did not have original manuscripts. They are copies of copies of copies where scribes and copiers have made intentional decisions to either smooth out their translation or they had an eye skip, meaning that they were recopying the manuscript but then they go to the next line and they skip a line and start copying in the next line because we found manuscripts with those actual errors in them. And so when you think about scribes copying over and over again, 
from beginning from the 300 CE. And then you think about even the conversations that the reformers are having in the 1200s, 12 to 1400s. And you see that the way that authority was coming into play was by the people who had the authority to translate and to interpret that biblical inerrancy and infallibility were never really a thing. Mm. It was how it became imputed onto the folks who had authority in the Catholic church or then what it means for folks, individual folks to read after the Protestant reformation. So now the authority becomes a part of the person, but it's interesting because I think what we've now gotten to in evangelicalism is the idea that the pastor is now the ultimate authority. And what does that pastor say about the text as the ultimate authority then kind of plays into what a congregation then begins to believe. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had that conversation about how authority is actually not so much within the text, but comes to the person who's wielding the text, Mm -hmm. which is why I had to even think through the former president waving a Bible Mm. outside of a burned out church in June of 2020. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the history with biblical inerrancy, especially in its more modern form and how it kind of developed out of the post-Civil War era? And and I think like Charles Finney, I think, was kind yes. of a part of that. Mm-hmm. Th- that to me is an interesting piece to think that biblical inerrancy, especially in its modern form, is this very recent invention. And it was created out of the Civil War and slavery. Yeah, that's a great one, too, because think about especially a letter like Philemon in mm-hmm. New Testament, that you have churches that split over how to read and interpret Philemon, meaning Paul never said that people should go back or Paul never said that an enslaved person should go back or Paul never said that an enslaved person should be freed or Paul never said this or that. And it's that idea of people literally reading a text and then beginning to interpret from that text. I don't know if I have enough information, especially from that particular period, to answer the question fully, because again, I'm a biblical scholar, and so I I can easily get lost in history. So please (laughs) forgive me on that. But I think that when I think about that split between American Baptist and Southern Baptist, Mm -hmm. it was that whole conversation on what an errant use of the Bible looked like. Mm -hmm. And so Southern Baptists who still engage with that inerrant idea of biblical text today just cannot, I think, separate inerrant from literal translations as well. Mm -hmm. And again, we're thinking about literal English translations, not looking at the Greek text. They're looking at literal English translations that say, okay, Paul sent this enslaved person back. So Northern churches, you have to send enslaved people back to us. And Northern churches are saying, but there's something else with regards to love and grace and how you treat one another that is also wrapped up in our biblical text. And the Southern churches would say, but Paul said here, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And Northern churches are like, but there's something else that we need to think through. And I I think that when you think about post-Civil War, 
that conversation actually crosses over each other without people really realizing that you're reading literally you're reading whole and thinking about American Baptist. Now they're reading like whole text and trying to get a, like a spirit of love and what that looks like. And I think they're both wrong actually, <laughs> meaning even when Paul is perhaps sending Onesimus back, our translations, and this is where trans- translation becomes important. Our translations usually say something like receive or refresh my heart in the Philemon text. And he uses this, Paul uses this language, this particular word splankna, three particular times in the Philemon text. And the splankna is usually translated as receive my heart or refresh my heart. I think a better understanding is an idea of the guts, meaning Paul's actually saying, my guts are so attached to Onesimus. And as my guts are attached to Onesimus, Philemon, your guts need to be attached to Onesimus as well. So if he owes you anything, I'll pay it back. But know that you are receiving my guts. And what does that look like? Well, think about today's day and age where someone walks in a room, you have a crush. And so your heart or your stomach begins to Twitter. There's something about that refreshing of a gut that I often say to students, I can't teach you how to actually feel something in your stomach, but I can point out to you where it occurs in the text and how we often get it wrong with literal translations Mm. that don't take into account what it actually feels to have a gut-to-gut tie with someone else. So I think they're both wrong. (laughs) So interesting. I I still remember one of my first classes when I was in seminary, we ended up learning that right after the Civil War, there were a number of theologians, including some at Princeton Theological Seminary, Mm -hmm. that started to develop the kind of modern form of biblical inerrancy. And the reason why they did it was because of because of emancipation, right? The political authority to continue to enslave people sort of had been undermined. And so to sort of counteract that, theologians started to develop a sort of theological justification to continue to enslave people. Mm-hmm. And Their way of doing that was to start to kind of push this idea of biblical inerrancy and to hear that biblical inerrancy, at least in its modern form, really emerged out of these racist and white supremacist ideals in the post-Civil War South was just like mind-boggling to me to think that it really came out of this racist inclination. And it it really kind of like sealed the stamp that like biblical inerrancy is not worth it. Like it's, it's so wrought with racism that it's not worth ever trying to redefine it or reform it. Exactly. And that I would think I was struck by the way that white men will kick out other white men from their associations if they don't keep holding on to this Mm. idea of inerrancy that is steeped in this racism. And so something I often say to students is you almost, in order to be someone who takes your biblical text seriously, you almost have to be the person where other people will look at you and call you a race traitor. Mm. And 
I think there's something else to be written about that as well, because I don't think I use that language in the book, but to begin to think about how the language I use in the book is how we all make it home. And I think ensuring that we all make it home means you almost have to be a race trader in mm-hmm. some circumstances. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, I forget what conversation it was, but it reminds me of a conversation I had with somebody on this podcast about how they don't want an ally. They want an accomplice. And sort of along the, those lines, like white people don't need to be a theological ally. They need to be a theological accomplice. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. It sounds like something, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking of Austin Channing Brown, but it sounds like something she would say yes, that yeah. you, you, you can't be an ally. You actually have to, you actually have to be ready to <laughs> drive the getaway car yeah. almost. <laughs> yes, exactly. So given its oppressive history, how does biblical inerrancy continue to still oppress people today? Well, think about the ways that I think, especially women are gaslit into thinking that they can't do certain things. Mm. I think that a lot of women especially in church settings, downplay their own gifts, their own giftings, their own spiritual strivings, because they think that they have to be demure or not speak so much or not take up as much space, especially in a church context. One of my best friends passed not too long ago. And I remember seeing one of the last times she preached And she preached from the floor of Mm. a church that did not allow women to preach from the pulpit. And I was struck again by how a powerful preaching woman would still preach in such a way where she shows her own diminishment, Mm. even in the midst of the preaching moment. And I think that we're still gaslit into thinking that we're not supposed to have a voice, have writings, have preaching moments over men and women. And I don't want to say preaching over, but I do want to acknowledge that women can preach and teach and have conversations with the biblical text Mm. and still do that. So I think we're being gaslit, but I also think that in some instances, people of color are also struggling with what it means to be fully included in some ministries as well. Mm. And I do believe there was a recent op-ed about the Wild Goose Festival. Mm -hmm. I've never Mm -hmm. been to Wild Goose, so I don't know. But there's still that struggle with white supremacy, even Mm -hmm. in the Wild Goose Festival. And I think that People of color and women are constantly being gaslit to try to squeeze themselves into boxes for these church ministries or parachurch organizations that are still acting as if white supremacy from biblical inerrancy and infallibility still rule the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So along those lines, how does womanism shape your understanding of biblical authority? Oh, yeah. I remember going to college. And as I said, I went as an adult Mm -hmm. back to school. And I come across a blue covered book 
entitled Sisters in the Wilderness, Dolores Williams. And I'm an undergrad and I see this book in the bookstore and I sit down on the floor and begin to read this book. And I begin to cry in the bookstore mm. because I we began to realize, oh my goodness, this is what I am. And I did not even realize that this is what I am. That womanism and the ways that Dolores Williams talks about Hagar and talks about forced surrogacy and voluntary surrogacy, Mm -hmm. it made me begin to look at even Hagar in the biblical text in a new light that I had never thought of before, Mm -hmm. that the story is always about Sarai and Abram. The story is never about Hagar. Mm -hmm. And then I began to question, well, what other stories in biblical texts have I already misread or they've already been implanted in me that I should read them in a particular way. And so I've written an article about the Samaritan woman and it's called, uh, and the word became dot, dot, dot gossip. Usually in the word became flesh in John one, one. That is awesome. Right. I love (laughs) that title. (laughs) And the thing is, I've always been trained to read that woman as She's going in the middle of the day because she's a harlot or a whore. Mm. And there's so many layers of that text that I said, oh, let my womanist hermeneutic of suspicion allow me to begin to read and ask different questions of this text than other people have asked or that other people have implanted in me. And so I'm going to cape for every woman in biblical text. I cape for Herodias in the biblical text of Mark chapter six. And to say, you know, what else is going on underlying this text that we don't necessarily think about? So I think for me, my womanist hermeneutic of suspicion allows me to ask questions of the text that people have said I'm not supposed to ask. Mm. And that's what womanism is. Wanting to know everything, wanting to ask the questions that people tell you, you should not be asking. I tried to hide my trouble, but it left me deformed. All my friends forgot my face and I was then forlorn. So with all of this said, how ought we understand the way the Bible shapes us and our faith? So in in other words, what is the best kind of authority the Bible should have in our lives or what kind of relationship should we have with the Bible? Yeah, we should constantly read and question. Mm. I love my husband immensely. And I constantly go to him and say, okay, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And sometimes I take his advice and sometimes I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I think about our relationship to the biblical text in that similar way. I read it. I read it in the Greek as well. Mm -hmm. So especially New Testament, I was reading Hebrew the other day and I was like, oh, I need to brush up even more on this. But (laughs) I was like, okay, I need to, I need to brush off my Hebrew more. But especially in the Greek New Testament, I read it and 
I then do look at translations to see what translations say, but I also have to recognize that translators make decisions that I may not necessarily have made. So what does that relationship look like now? Folks who want to take seriously the biblical text have to read it with a variety of different people. Mm. Meaning if you're just getting it from your overlord or over shepherd, did I say overlord? I did. (laughs) It's kind of how some of them are. Yes, I know. That what does it look like to actually read in community and have conversations with the biblical text Mm -hmm. and recognize that someone else may read it slightly differently than you. And so part of the conversation is how should I understand this text or how do Mm -hmm. you understand this text or what would I do differently about life in this text? Or Mm -hmm. what does this text say to all of us as community? How should we engage our unhoused population? How should we engage our folks who are dealing with drug issues? How, what does this actually say to us and not necessarily go for the pat trite answers that we've always laid down on. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's what it is. And I think it's a more serious relationship. I think it's a more conscientious relationship. Mm -hmm. I think it's a relationship that actually takes seriously. There's a 2000 year difference in a lot of these texts. So you can't make a one-to-one correspondence for all people for all time. Mm -hmm. You actually have to have a conversation with the text as you have a conversation with God. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. I love that. It it really is similar to how I've been able to actually take the Bible more seriously and to respect the Bible more by Mm -hmm. taking away its sort of ultimate authority. Because by allowing the Bible to be ultimate authority and the end all be all, you're really not truly respecting it and taking it seriously, given the fact that within the Bible is a lot of complexity and it's really complicated. So it's you're really not respecting the text if you're using it as this sort of ultimate authority. With that said, too, along those lines, in the church that I'm a part of, in the community, the Bible is understood as one member of that community. And mm. so it, it has a lot to say. It's an important member of the community, but it is one of those community members. Just as I would imagine for all of us, regardless if we're a part of a church community or not, different people have different ways of shaping our lives. And the Bible is one of those members that can sort of shape our lives. And yes. to understand or to relate to the Bible for me in that way has been so meaningful and has radically changed my faith versus when I was a young evangelical and I understood the Bible in the inerrant way that we were talking about earlier. I love that. I love that there are communities cropping up where that is the relationship with the Bible. Mm-hmm. because there's still what I would call bibliolatry or this idol worship of the Bible where it becomes equivalent with God. Mm-hmm. And how do you actually get folks to get out of that idolatrous worship of Bible that then allows them to use it as a hammering tool over other people's heads or as a way to end a discussion, mm-hmm. as a way to quote unquote end an argument that they don't really want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. That's that's where it's the community member aspect is a really good way to think about the Bible. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that you're a part of a community yeah. that does that. And I wish more would do such yeah, a thing. Absolutely. So with that said, how do you hope if God still breathes can be inspiring and liberating theology for people? 
Yeah. I think that one of the parts of the book that I like are the questions at the end of each chapter that I would hope faith communities can come together, read a chapter and begin to engage some of the questions at the end of each chapter and construct a theology of the Bible from some of those questions. Mm -hmm. That's what my ultimate goal is, I think, and how we actually have better conversations about the biblical text. And again, thinking about the Bible as a community member, I really enjoy that idea. I think Mm -hmm. that's where I'm trying to get to Mm -hmm. for faith communities who are reading it together. And I would I would say that I'm very happy that there are different faith communities who are reading it as their book series. Um, Evangelical Church, uh, Lutheran Church of California and Nevada are reading it in their churches. And there are mm. other places I know that the, that the book is being read in as book study groups. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm grateful for. And constructing a theology of Bible while also empowering people to be the types of ministers or parishioners or lay people that they would want to be. Mm -hmm. That's what I hope for at the end, Mm -hmm. because even still, as we said, it's a short book and I don't think I land on, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to read, but still prompting, prompting questions for Mm -hmm. further consideration in various communities. Mm -hmm. That's what I hope for. I love that. Last question, Dr. Angela Parker, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? They can follow me on Twitter at ANP22FAB. So A-N, Nicole Parker, P, <laughs> two, two, F as in Frank, A as in Apple, B as in boy, at on Twitter. They can follow me on Instagram as well. I've been posting a lot of the different various book clubs that have been using the book in their book clubs. can also find me on Facebook. I'm, I have a author or influencer page on Facebook. And I will have a new website up by next week. So it's not up just yet, but that will be at AngelaNicoleParker.com. Lovely. Thank you. Oh, they can also find me through Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology website as well. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Angela, for talking a little bit more about the book. I find it incredible. This is exactly the kind of book I think lots of different kinds of people need for them to re-relate to the Bible, uh, especially for those who are coming out of more oppressive Christian circles. This is such an important book because I know, again, like I mentioned before, I think the Bible really is that sort of like last piece to kind of unraveling their faith. And so I think this book is a really important piece to helping people pull that last piece out and let the the Jenga blocks just all crumble and in the best way possible. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank so you. <laughs> thank you again for, for not only writing the book, but sharing a little more about it. Thank you. There are wounds on my body from movement too fast. There's graves and there's bruises whose sting seems... If you'd like to connect with Angela and Laura and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.
天，你的走。